This podcast is brought to you by House of Macadamias. I love macadamia nuts. They are incredibly good for you. They're the healthiest nut on a pound for pound basis, but they've always been hard to find and frankly, very expensive. House of Macadamias changes all that by going directly to farmers in South Africa to take the best nuts directly from each harvest. They turn them into incredible products, chocolate dip macadamias, protein bars, you name it. They taste incredible. I live off these products on a day-to-day basis. I'm a huge fan. Go to houseofmacadamias.com backslash Noah, use the code NOAH20 and you won't be disappointed. Welcome to the Uncharted podcast. Uncharted is a community of some of the world's best entrepreneurs, founders, investors, creatives, and beyond. At our dinners and at our annual summit in New York, we have dialogues with people who are truly at the top of their game across every industry. This podcast is designed really to offer the world and the audience a peek into the magical conversations that happen behind closed doors at our events, and more importantly, a peek into the brains of people who are truly at the top of their game. My goal with every guest is that if you know them well, you'll hear them talk about something or say something they've really never said before, and if you've never heard of them, you'll know exactly what makes them such a badass by the time the episode is over. Welcome to Uncharted. We're glad you're here. All right, so Sahil Bloom, the Uncharted podcast, there's going to be some people who listen in the audience who probably know exactly who you are, the, the thread king. There may be some people from the advertising side, advertising week side that know less about you, so I want to make sure that they can get the full spiel on how you went from as Sam Parr put it, no-name private equity dude, which I found comically offensive and you didn't seem too rattled by it, to um, arguably the number one business finance thought leader on Twitter, which is a big deal. But first, I want to talk about what you did this morning, which was you woke up in Westchester. It was, I'm not going to curse, but insanely cold outside. You went and probably said hi to your son. And then you went outside and got in a bathtub full of freezing cold water outside and sat in there for five minutes. Why'd you do that, bro? <laughs> uh, look, I mean, the the cold plunge is what you're referencing. It's, cold a, it's this tub. Uh, I do that, this too, by the way. I yeah, just want to hear I, your explanation. I mean, it's, it's this new sort of trendy, uh, you know, thing within the fitness and health landscape, which is basically the idea that you uh, get intentional cold exposure. Um, and it's supposed to have a whole host of physical benefits and improve your metabolism, improve your immune system, all these things. Um, I do it more for the mental side yeah. more than anything else. I have this um, cold plunge out on my deck that's sitting outside. I got it this summer. So when I was doing it during the summer, sounds it was pretty quite great. lovely. Yeah, it was like, you know, nice. 75, 80. Yeah, we had a hot summer. So it was like you'd go get into this freezing cold water. The water's 39 degrees. And it was really nice. Like sun's on your face. It's great. Now, uh, not so light out at 530 in the morning when I'm going and doing it. And as you said, it was 23 degrees this morning when I went and got in. It's like a hot tub compared to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it actually feels like a little good being in there versus oh, the, cold, the cold wind. That's insane. Um, but look, it's a one hard thing you can do to start your day every single day that makes everything else feel easier. Mm. And I'm a big believer in just the idea of embracing a little bit of friction in your life. We've been on this general trend when you like zoom out and look at humanity over the last couple hundred years of 
increasingly reducing friction in our lives. Everything about technology is about reducing friction, reducing friction in the consumer experience, reducing friction uh, in your kind of day-to-day life and how you approach your relationships, how you date. I mean, like the friction in the dating experience now relative to our parents is totally different. You can just go on an app and find girls you like or find guys you like and just go through and it's very easy to do. So everything has been about reducing friction. And my perspective is that when we reduce friction in all areas of our life, we're also sneakily pulling away a lot of the meaning and a lot of that texture that gave our lives meaning. Hmm. And so I believe in reinserting little bits of friction where you can. And sometimes that means exposing yourself to challenging environments and stressful environments like the cold. Sometimes it means taking the stairs instead of taking the elevator when you can. Um, But in those little ways where you can add little bits of friction back into your life, I think it adds quite a bit of meaning and it adds that texture uh, that ends up allowing you to grow over the long term. Do you... um do you recommend and prescribe cold plunging to people in your life or are you just like this is something i like to do take it or leave it i think it's an amazing thing um i'm trying to get my dad into it Mm. uh because i think you know it has a whole host of health benefits as i said and there's plenty of research and dr huberman has done a few podcasts on this a ton of research that says um, it has those real benefits dopamine release um a whole lot of physical benefits I personally think that most people wouldn't be able to do it on a consistent basis. (laughs) Sounds like a challenge. It is a real challenge. And and the reality is like, you don't have to do it to the extent that I do. You don't have to have this thing outside. You can do a cold shower for like a minute and do that as your little test every single morning to just lock in. I find the gratitude that comes from it is enormous. If I can do that one hard thing at the start of every day and sit there and say like, wow, I have such an amazing life. This is the challenge that I'm having to face today. I have this point of gratitude every single morning where, I mean, and I will do it in there. I'll say three things out loud while I'm lying there that I'm grateful for. You don't wake your wife up? (laughs) No, no, no. Well, my wife is with my son at the time. And I like, as you said, I wake up and six month old son, like smile, laugh, talk to him for a few minutes. And then I go out and get in there. And suffer. And no, and I go in and I suffer and I think like, how lucky am I? Yeah. Like, how nice is this? That this is the challenging thing that I have to do today. It's not like feeding my family or right. all of the real challenges that exist out in the world. It's this. How lucky am I that this is the challenging thing in my life? Um, and I think it's important. I, I think it's important. I think a lot of people could benefit from it. Yeah. Um, I do this too. I do. A, I do a cold shower five, six days a week, and it's the it's sixty seconds cold as you can get it. Physiological benefits are instant. It's unbelievable, but it sucks. It's it's absolutely terrible and almost intolerable for a second. I think or, showers are harder than the cold plunge. By the way, yeah. because there's something about the fact that the. Uh, that the lever to turn it hot or turn it warm is right there there. (laughs) that makes it actually more mentally challenging because you're literally like you turn it and you immediately start having the like oh why am i doing this this is dumb like it's been 60 seconds probably it's fine and you just like start having that mental mental gymnastics gymnastics to go and to go and change it back when you're in the tub you can't do that right like i'm just i'm in the thing you just get out and no one would know if i just didn't do it one morning right? right like no one would know, you but would. I would know. Yeah. Uh, and I would no longer be the type of person that does the thing that I say that I'm going to do on a yeah. daily basis. And that matters to me. That's yeah. just who I am. Um, so, yeah. There's there's an interest. One quick anecdote about the cold punch, and then we're going to talk about your business and how you got where you are. But I found this interesting that I think a lot of the a lot of the thing that drives people like you and me to do these cold plunges and things where we torture ourselves is like an underlying desire to be successful and improve ourselves and get to this point. And there was a funny anecdote that happened when Michael Lowe, we all know Michael Lowe, many people, he's very, very wealthy, very successful, the type of guy we all aspire to achieve his level of wealth. I told him I do the cold shower 
every day and he's like that sounds like the dumbest thing i've ever heard why would you ever subject yourself to that that's torture i you couldn't pay me a billion dollars which i don't need to do that and i just found it funny that like a guy like that is like you you couldn't pay me right and yeah no interest i mean there's no it's hard to like put some direct benefit on this right it's not like i'm gonna make more money from doing it it's not like i'm gonna you know get some new opportunity at work or that i'm gonna have some new thing happen in my life that wasn't gonna happen otherwise it's just an approach to life and the way that I want to live that is going to manifest itself in a hundred different ways. Hundred percent. The fact that I'm willing to do this, it's just a little piece of discipline and furthering my resolve in whatever it is that comes into my life in another place. I mean, your stress response from being able to manage this on a daily basis, 100%. I just have noticed I don't get stressed. Yeah. Like when things that are stressful in life hit me, I know that I can like slow myself down because that's what you have to do. You get in and you have the like fight or flight reaction. You want to like, I got to get out of this thing. It's terrible, but you have to slow yourself down. And that's a skill for life because mm-hmm. you have things that come into your life inevitably. Yeah. Where, like, you know, a family member gets sick, something happens in your life, you get fired, whatever it is where like everything speeds up on you and you need to be able to slow down and just breathe. Yeah. And being able to do that is powerful. It's the same reason people meditate on a daily basis. I think it has that same effect. Yeah, Yeah, you just are like building up that muscle over time. It's it's training for life. 100%. I think it's it's not that if you do cold plunges, wake up early, meditate, you're going to be successful. But I, I don't know if it was you who said this or someone where if you find someone who's doing cold plunges, meditating, wake up early, chances are they're probably not struggling. Like they're probably doing, they're on their way, yeah. right? I always thought this about, um, I used to go to, so when I first started working, I got my first job. I just graduated from, I went to Stanford. I played baseball there, got done and I got my first job. And uh, what was your first job? I was working at a private equity fund that had just gotten started in the Bay Area. It's a good job out of school. It was awesome. Amazing group of people, incredible place to learn, et cetera, small group. And, um, you know, generally speaking, I had to be in the office by around 830. Mm. But I decided that I was going to get to the office at 630 and I was going to be like the last one there. That was just what I was going to do because it was the same mentality as I had with baseball where I was like, I'm not that talented and I wasn't that good and I wasn't that good in school. But I knew that if I just like showed up every single day longer than people, you know, more focused than people that I was just going to figure out a way to win. And so I was going to apply that same mentality to my first job. And what that meant was that if I wanted to work out still, but I wanted to get to the get to the office by 630, I had to get to the gym by five and work out. And there was like a group of like 10 or 15 people, maybe like 10 people that were there every single weekday mm. at 5am. And I didn't know who any of them were at the time, right? It was just like this group of guys and a few women that I saw every single day and we kind of became friends because we would see each other and you know, you'd know, you have the head nod yeah. and talk to them in the locker room yeah. or whatever it was. It turns out that like, if you look at this, the the like stat sheet of these people that were there in the morning, Crushing I it. mean, it was like, you know, Tim Cook was there, the CEO of Apple at the time, <laughs> you know, this, he was newly CEO of Apple at the time. Wow. Uh, you know, Haymont, uh, the head of General Catalyst, like it was wow. these like, power brokers of the world that were there every single morning then. And it's not that getting up at five and going to the gym made them successful. It's just like that same mentality that led to them showing up at that time of the morning. It's a signal of who they are. Exactly. Um, And so I personally think that like when you meet someone that is doing those things, you can generally predict that they're going to be successful at whatever it is. Or at the very least that you're going to get along with them, right? They're going to be value line types of people. It's it's, uh, Strauss Zelnick, who I've been trying to introduce you to, who's this very, very successful media private equity legend. He runs the program in New York City. Strauss is in his 60s. He's more ripped than both of us. And he has has basically 20 to 25 people under 30 years old with him every day at 6 a.m. at some gym in New York City. And it's an unbelievable testament to this guy who does this every single day. He's 60 years old. He doesn't need any more money. He doesn't need to work. But he does this every single day. 
say, and the types of people who show up every day in their 20s, if you want to buy options on people's future career, I yeah. think that's probably a pretty good place to look, right? Yeah. People who show up. A hundred percent. I mean, it's like, it's the same reason I'm a big fan of betting on athletes. Like College athletes, I think, are... Uh, generally pretty raw coming out of college from a professional standpoint because mm-hmm. a lot of the time they've had to dedicate all of their mental and physical energy to their sport and they were really focused on that a lot of the time you know depending on the sport they thought they were going to play professionally like I did at one time before I got hurt um, and those people tend to have a slightly more challenging path to that first job because they haven't had all the internship experience or they haven't been focused on what jobs look like it's just like a more challenging first jump but if you took a snapshot of them 10 years in the future, mm. I'd be willing to bet on a lot of those people being extremely successful because that same discipline and the same multi you know, the, like the same ability to manage time, um, to manage their focus, energy, et cetera, during their collegiate careers, that applies so directly to what they're going to have to do in the real mm. world to get along with a bunch of different types of people in a team atmosphere. Um, it's incredible. And so like I've always been a big believer in betting on athletes as well because I think it's just, it's a great and fertile training ground for life and the mental stuff you tweeted this i'm going to tee this one up for you i think i think it was something along the lines of one of the fastest ways to stand out is just do what you say you're going to do right and i think athleticism and i want to hear about your time at stanford is if you're going to play at that level and get any semblance of decent enough to play at a high level there's not many short unless you're a savant and even then you have to work hard you have to show up right yeah i mean look it's it's like the simple rules for life um and i i talk about this a lot publicly because i do think that with a platform and with the platform that I've built now, there's a little bit of like a responsibility that I feel mm. to try to pass along some of the, I don't know if I would call it wisdom, some of the things that I feel like I learned from either my parents or my grandfather, uh, my mom's father, um, or like mentors in my life that I feel like were impactful in my own journey. Um, and a lot of those pieces of advice are old fashioned by current mm. standards, right? Like the last 10 years, we had this like weird sentiment that hard work is overrated. Mm. This is like one of my big pet peeves now, right? Like everyone's been saying like, oh, hard work's overrated actually. I just think that was like the sign of the market top. When everyone starts mm. saying that hard work is overrated, I'm I'm like, next time that happens, I'm, I'm selling equities. Yeah. Like I'm, 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 sell, I'm selling the market <laughs> because it's just not. And, and early in your career, I think I think what you really need to focus on early in your career is you work hard first and then you can work smart. Then you can figure out where your leverage is in the system and how you're going to like figure out how to exploit your leverage and really nail those things that are like the 10x opportunities. But early on, there's no replacement for hard work. Like go talk to the people that are running the world in all of these different industries and in all of these different areas. They all work their asses off early in their career. There's no way any of them are like, yeah, I kind of coasted. I did whatever. And you like go talk to Michael. There's no way he was working. He, if he was in media, he was working 90, 100 hour weeks. Like there's just no way around that early in your career, because from a learning standpoint, you just learn that much more than the other person. And just like do the math on compounding on the knowledge that you're building up in those early years of your career. The person that takes all that time and really focuses their energy on that over the first five years of that of their career and they're learning a ton and they're around people and they're exposing themselves to environment, they're building a network, all of those things. And then take the person who's trying to work smart, quote unquote, and is kind of coasting just to make their you know 200K salary or whatever they're making and they're happy with that. Go check on them 10 years, 15 years down the road. That compounds just every single year that like early behavior in their career is going to have compounded in one way or the other. Anything above zero compounds positively. If you're just coasting, it's gonna compound negatively and you're gonna go the other way. 
So I'm, I mean, like I just am a massive believer in just old fashioned hard work mm. around these things early in your life. And it's not trendy to say, and people like raise their eyebrows at it and say like, oh, it's, you know, capitalism, whatever. But it's a reality of if you want to achieve incredible things, you have to work hard. That's also an important point because not everyone wants to achieve incredible, you know, top 1% outcomes. And that's totally fine. I actually like if your goal is to just be able to provide for your family, put a roof over your children's head, you know, work nine to five, spend tons of time with your family. I think that's fantastic. And there's tons of people I know like that, that have amazingly happy, fulfilling Mm. lives doing that. And that's fine. And then I do think you can find something that you enjoy doing that you get some energy from and work smart. But if you're trying to go after those top 1% outcomes and build a legacy and leave some mark and change an industry or go and do the things that a lot of people listening to this podcast will want to be doing, you have to work hard. There's no Mm. way around it. Mm. You had all very, very poignant, and I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. I want to talk about where you are right now, right? Sahil Bloom in, what is it, November 2022, you have developed this persona on Twitter where chances are, if anyone's on Twitter, they probably interacted with something that you've done, right? For the past two, three, four years, since since however long you've been doing it, you have built up one of the more respected and prolific accounts on the platform. You graduate from Stanford, played baseball, you're not gonna go pro, you go to private equity. As I understand it, you basically had a non-existent Twitter. You You had the baseline Twitter that anyone who's been on the platform has of just their friends. What was the first, it was the tweet with Frederico, right? You tweeted something about the Fed with an analogy and that popped off. Like t- walk, walk the audience through that first story. Yeah. And then I want to pull exactly how it all came together. Yeah. I mean, so you referenced it at the beginning of the, uh, of the podcast that Sam Parr, our common friend, found founder of the hustle and uh, host of my first million, the, the uh, well-known podcast. I went on the, my first million podcast and he opened it by saying that you were a no name <laughs> private equity guy. Sam and I are super close friends. A bunch of people like it wasn't it a jab. It sounded yeah, like one. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a subtle jab. It's yeah. fine. We're friends. Like yeah. we can talk shit to each other. Um, and I fired back at him quite yeah. a bit, which was great. Um, but look, I, I don't think that that's like an incorrect statement. And it's yeah. also not something I take offense to. I think it's great because, you know, c- coming from somewhere that was like no name and ending up being a name, like I consider yeah. that a point of success. I think so. Um, but look, I mean, I was marching down the traditional finance path. Um, there are a lot of careers, private equity being one of them, you know, other traditional finance roles definitely similar where there's a lot of momentum and like gravity to the role where every year you stay, you're much more likely to stay forever. And I think if not for COVID, I probably would have, I would have put my head down. I was making a little bit more money every year. I was doing well. The funds were doing well. It was a great group of people. Um, if not for COVID, I think I would have just continued on that yeah. path. There would never have been that like chaos that got inserted into the system. Were you on Twitter before COVID? I had a Twitter from like my baseball days at Stanford, but I had a few hundred followers. So was, so no, so I never used it. I, I used it for like real time news. Sure. You know, like I would open it up if something was happening. But you weren't tweeting anything no, 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 substantial. No, 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 nothing. Like stupid random, sure. you know, hey, going out, you know. Go go into the baseball game, whatever, like picture, whatever, you know, standard stuff. Go Stanford. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So COVID happens. COVID happens. And for me, like a lot of people, that was like the chaos that just got got thrown in. And then you had to figure out, okay, what was going to happen? And a lot of people, uh, you know, it was like. Uh, have you ever heard of like the Hydra and like ancient Greek mythology is mm. like, you know, the thing you chop off its head and it grows back two heads in its place. And so mm. every time like the chaos hits, it's like anti-fragility. You end up actually benefiting from yeah. the chaos. And I've always had a mentality of like, how, how do I become like the Hydra where the chaos hits and rather than being broken by it, you actually get better because of it. And so when the, when COVID hit and I was stuck at home all of a sudden, my first reaction was, okay, 
I'm not traveling three, four days a week like I was before. I don't have quite as much work. I wasn't working like 80, 90 hours because private equity, the market's yep. kind of just slowed down to a halt. Yep. What can I do with all this time? I'm not just going to sit around. There was literally, there was no social life. Like yep. I couldn't go out. There was yeah. literally nothing to do. And I was opening up Twitter a lot because the markets were going nuts. It was like that point in time, March, April, May of 2020, where everyone was stuck at home. Like the economy was literally not working yeah. and markets were going like that. You know, markets yeah. were just flying yeah. at the time because the Fed had come in 100%. and just said, hey, we're going to buy everything. And I had so many friends, mainly from my baseball days, that were texting me saying like, you're in finance. What the hell is going on? Did like, they know you, that you were like smart enough to understand this? Is that yeah, what it I mean, was? I just, they, they knew me. Like my baseball friends knew me as the finance guy. Got it. And so they were texting me. I was the guy they would go to being like, dude, what's going on? Why is this happening? And there were tons of explanations out there. You could go look up articles. Most of them had these experts that were throwing a bunch of big words at you. Mm. And basically the way they were explaining it was like, let me make you feel stupid, Noah. I'm going to explain this to you with a whole bunch of jargon about, you know, like how the Fed is using, you yeah, uh, you know, all of their different tools and all of the different terms, like everything is going to be totally unapproachable. Yeah. I'm just going to make you feel like an idiot yep. and you're not going to understand it, yep. but you're going to like be wowed by my intelligence. There yep. was a whole lot of that yep. going on. And so what I said was like, I wonder if I can use storytelling to simplify and make this stuff digestible. And so that first thing I put out was I literally was on a walk. I had a friend who was like, explain this to me. Why are the markets soaring? And I sat down on the floor in my garage and I was like, I think I can write like a parable, um, mm. a little story that makes it clear what the Fed is doing in the market that's making the market soar. And so I wrote this, you know, little cutesy story, Mr. Federico, the Fed that was coming into a yep. market and um, declares that he's a buyer of anything at any price. And what happens in the market when he does that? And it was basically an explanation of the Fed put, like this whole idea of the Fed put. And um, it took off. Like, I put it out, and I told my wife when I tweeted, I was like, this is going to go viral. And she's, like, you know, rolling her eyes at me laughing, mm. like, we're just sitting at home. Um, and Chamath retweeted it and a few wow. other people, and it got, like, a bunch of traction right then. And so That's then a watershed I, moment for you. That's a big deal. Yeah, right? I, and I kind of hustled for it because it did nothing for the first hour, and my wife was like, ah, uh, yeah, going viral. How did huh? you hustle for it? What would um, you do? He tweeted something similar just like talking about the markets and I commented I was the first comment under it with my thing saying like reply, hey you'll appreciate this Sahil. right under there reply real quick Sahil, and yeah. he saw it read it and then reshared it wow um, so that was Chamath retweet yeah that was really what was a catalyst what sparked it because wow. um, that got me from like 500 to 1500 or 2000 followers and then I started having the dopamine hit of like okay there's something to this I yeah. have a little product market fit got it maybe I can continue writing and you know explaining these things in simple terms to people and see what happens so the key insight there was and then I want to I just want to I want to make sure I can put a pin in that mm -hmm. you had an idea to distill complicated finance and business topics into something that was much more approachable for a mass market you tweeted it in a way that was approachable you use someone with a bigger audience essentially to amplify it. That got attention to you, and you're like, okay, interesting. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, abstracting it a little bit, my general thesis here was that there's a whole lot of people trying to offer you the Ferrari, like the really fancy, sexy looking solution that you're going to have to pay up for. You're not going to understand. You're not going to mm. be able to control it. And no one was offering the like Toyota Camry. Mm. Like, perfectly good car gets you from a to b really simple anyone can drive it and camry's and my my insight was like camry's sell a whole lot more than ferraris you might sell five ferraris a year if you're a dealership camry's are selling like there are tons of people coming in and buying cameras because everyone to be a wants camry a camry dealer yeah. and so i just said like 
I'd much rather be the Camry because I don't care. I don't have an ego around yeah. sounding smart. And most of these experts, my suspicion was like they were doing it for themselves. It yeah. was to make yourself feel good by like, look how smart I am. I'm well, going to use a white this. space in the market. Yeah, exactly. Saw, right? So I was like, look, there's TikTokers telling you to YOLO into call options of GameStop. Mm. There's experts talking over your head, making you feel dumb. I'm going to go right down the middle and I'm going to give you just like digestible, accessible things. I'm not selling anything. I had a day job. I was yeah. working. So there wasn't like I was trying to sell an ebook or I was trying to, you know, get you to buy my like journal whatever whatever product there was nothing um it was just free information that i was putting out and spending a lot of time on and it it just started building and it was was the second tweet thread you did i don't remember something similar did it do well yeah i mean it was like the first one went pretty viral and then it was like the second one was okay but still got some traction and it was it was enough that i kind of kept at it got it um i didn't have the like massive letdown moment but i also knew i was just going to be willing to hustle yeah like this is before threads really existed as a thing. I right. was having to comment under each tweet. Um, and it was before the, like, that people had figured out the whole thing of, like, replying under people, under people's stuff. And so I had, I was the first one to do that. Mm. Like, I, I went and did that. And I figured out who are the people that really need to see this one piece of content. And I was getting it in front of them and then figuring out if they would share it. Um, and it just started building. And I very quickly knew, like, there's product market fit to this. Mm. I'm going to continue building and see what happens. Um, How quick I, did your audience grow? Uh, it was a grind, man. I mean, I like remember, I think I remember like mid summer of 2020. So I, the first one was in May of 2020. I think like mid late summer, I think I had like 5,000 followers. And I remember calling my dad and being like, dad, I don't know if you know this, but your son's famous. Like, <laughs> I made you got 5,000 followers. Forget dad. Stanford. Like, I'm big on wild. Twitter. <laughs> like this is wild. That 5,000 people look to me for yeah. stuff on this. And, um, he was so proud. I mean, it was like awesome. My dad's one yeah. of the most supportive people in the world. Uh, it's, it's incredible, but you know, it was like, it was a grind. Uh, by the end of that year, I built it to like 75,000 and wow. I st- just stick with it. Every yeah, day. There was never like one thing that just exploded. It was just really like every single week I was showing up twice. Like yeah. there was two threads every single week wow. on, you know, generally early on, it was like on finance. And then I started to slowly expand to like mental models and things that had kind of broader resonance. Um, but it was a grind, man. I mean, I was just like, I was spending eight hours on each one of them at the time. Wow. Cause it was like, I mean, you know, I, a lot of the time I was having to do a bunch of research and make sure that it was correct and then vet it with people to make sure it was real and good. Like, I was deathly afraid of putting something out right. and having someone be like, mm, that's not right. Because mm. there was a lot of stuff that, like, I didn't deal with on a daily basis, right? Like, call options. I was yeah. working in private equity. I right. wasn't trading call options. And so... Um, it was, I mean, it was a grind, grind in those early days. I think it's important for the audience to recognize that a lot of people probably look at you right now and you're like, oh, you got famous overnight, this whole thing. And you talked at the beginning of this pod about showing up every single day. I mean, eight hours per thread during the pandemic, never having one that popped off so much that you picked up 200,000 followers. I mean, that is, that is a real grind if i've ever heard it that did not this didn't happen overnight no i mean there was no there was no hack to this right like everyone always asks me like what was the hack what did you do like what were the three things that you you know can grow your massive audience i'm like dude the hack was i wrote two hundred thousand words on twitter over the course of two years yeah that was the hack i showed up every single week and wrote something that was high quality every single week never like the you know random growth hacky like here's 10 youtube channels that'll change your life like i never did that it Mm. was always up to a quality bar that i knew was good um, over and over and over again for two years and so it was like 
I never grew by more than, I don't know, 5,000 followers from a single thread or 7,000 followers from a single thread. So, I mean, if you look and just like look at my trajectory, it was just like chipping away, chipping. I mean, it was like the stone cutter, right? Where yeah. you're like, you're chipping at it over and over and over again. And the hundredth chip, the thing breaks open. And you'd never say that that hundredth chip was the one that broke it. Yeah. It was the 99 leading up to that yeah. over and over and over again that did it. And really, that's how I've always approached everything. But with this in particular, it was just like chip away, chip away, chip away what can i do okay chip away a little bit more um and eventually you break through hmm. have you had um imposter syndrome along the way <laughs> yeah Talk all the about time that. all the time um i mean i'm a big believer that imposter syndrome is mostly a good thing um i think it pushes you to grow there's this reframe that adam grant has where it, it's kind of the flip from saying like imposter the imposter says oh my god I don't know. I don't know this thing. Uh, people are going to realize that I don't know it. And the reframe is, oh my God, I don't know this thing. Uh, it's only a matter of time until I figure it out. Mm. And I've always thought that was a powerful thing. Like you, by definition, you don't know how to do the thing until you do it. And so unless you're putting yourself in a position where you're an imposter, you're not actually pushing yourself forward into new things. Jeff Bezos was an imposter at running a trillion dollar company. He didn't know how to run a trillion dollar company. He didn't know how to run a billion dollar company. He didn't know how to run an online bookstore. Mm. And yet he put himself in positions where he had to figure that out and go do it. So we're all by definition imposters until we actually go and do the thing. I still feel crazy about the fact that as many people as there are reading my stuff on a weekly basis. Now, I mean, my newsletter in particular, I'm like the reach of it now and the responses I get to it, it's crazy to me. I'm, th you know, I'm 31 years old, mm. and there's people like, you know, I'll get responses from like 60 year old men and women that are like reading something and taking some insight from something that I said. That's crazy to me. Yeah. And at the same time, we live in a world where, if you put in the effort and you're willing to share openly your own struggles and be diligent about it, you can reach anybody and you can change their life in some positive way. Hundred percent. I think it's the. If the market tells you you are or you're worth that, you are, right? There's no arguing about it, right? You clearly have a product market fit that many can only dream of in terms of your Twitter following and the, and the newsletter. So I think imposter syndrome is a healthy thing to feel because it means you're humble and you have vulnerability, but it's been earned. It's been chipped away at, right? So you talked a little bit on, on Sam and Sean's podcast about the decision to say, all right, I'm not going to go back to private equity and go basically all in on Twitter, which has now led to a fund and multiple courses and a newsletter business and an agency and a whole bunch of other ventures that you probably haven't even talked about yet. Um, for the purposes of this audience who may or may not know exactly what that decision looked like, talk through, A, you don't have to give numbers, but how much money were you making, if any, on Twitter before you decided, through the Twitter audience of Sahil before you decided to leave and go this full time? And, and what was that decision like? So I was on a pretty lucrative track working in private equity. I mean, for people that don't understand the, the industry, it's a, it's a really lucrative role in the, in the finance world. You can make a lot of money doing it generally over longer periods of time. Like it's all about getting what they call carried interest and, in, you know, in these funds, which is a profit share of the funds and funds return themselves over, you know, five to seven, five to 10 years. And so it's long-term, but very, very lucrative. And if you stay, there's like a pretty high degree of certainty that you're going to make a certain amount of money and have a certain life. And that's 
really enticing for a risk averse person, which I would have considered myself to be mm. actually like highly risk averse. I come from a family, you know, my dad's an academic, my mom, um, you know, comes from a very academic background as well. And you know, my mom's Indian. So like the, the idea of like taking the safe job at yeah. McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or whatever, like that's really enticing to an yeah. Indian kid. Um, and so the, the whole concept of like, I'm going to quit my job to go do this thing. That's like, I didn't even know what it was. Like yeah. there wasn't a thing. Yeah. Um, was crazy. It was totally crazy to me. Um, and really, what happened was like, you know, I had this moment of, oh my god, we need to live closer to family. That was the first step. Um, now I've written about this a bunch, but like, our parents aren't getting any younger. Um, we're only going to see them a few more times in our lives, mm. and that really, really impacted me and led to me waking up one morning and telling my wife, hey. I want to move back to the East Coast. We lived in California at the time, really far from family, both of our sets of parents who we weren't seeing more than once a year. Mm. And so I decided we wanted to move back East. When we decided that, my first thought was, I'm going to go join another private equity-like fund on the East Coast to be to be closer to family. I went and interviewed at a bunch of these places and basically just didn't have any luck. Got hmm. like rejected for, um, yeah, I was trying to kind of transition to doing more like early stage investing. And I didn't really have a case to make for it yet. Yep. Um, and most of them couldn't really understand the fact that I had this public presence. And a lot of them were like uncomfortable about it. I think candidly, like a lot of the senior, you know, the big dogs at those firms don't like the idea of someone more junior having Getting a bigger public attention. presence than them. Mm. I think there's an ego thing just my suspicion, um, but wasn't having any luck. And so basically I got to this point where I was like, oh my God, I had already told my firm I was leaving and I don't have anything set up mm. for what's next. What am I gonna do? And mm. I was like very lost. I remember waking up one morning just being like, I made a terrible mistake. This was like- What I year is this? Uh, this is mid 2021, so about a year ago. Wow. And I had a few conversations. One was with Sean actually, which I mentioned on that podcast. Another one was my wife. She was like, why don't you just do your stuff like you're doing so well with all these things that you're working on why don't you just do that like why do you need to go get another job mm. um and her support and the fact that she was willing to say that meant the world to me mm. because then i was like oh okay i actually can take this risk right now i don't need to view it as some catastrophic thing in my life i can take this risk if my wife is willing to support this we didn't have a kid at the time so it's maybe a little easier to do um and that was a big unlock for me because at that point i was like okay, what does this look like? At the time, you know, to your question on numbers, this is like mid 2021, I was probably making, I don't know, I was probably making like 40 grand a month on the side stuff. On Twitter stuff. Yeah. Like, number. Not like, you know, tw there was nothing like I was monetizing on Twitter, yeah. but I had started this agency business that was, um, you know, I had someone working there and it was doing well. Uh, the newsletter had just started to monetize and was making some money. And so there was like a few things. The podcast was in the works. And I knew mm. I was going to make money on that. So there was like real money. 40K is a nun. That's not four more, grand. That's, it was more than I was making cash yeah, comp at my prior job. It's important to note that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, I had the like, you know, fancy sounding private equity job, but I was actually making more money on right. this like random weekend thing that I was doing. And so that gave me the confidence of like, that's in the 10 hours a week that I'm spending thinking about this. What if scales. I spend 60 hours a week thinking about it? What could I do? Mm. And I didn't know, but that was my bet that I was making. Um, so I ended up deciding to leave. We moved back to the East Coast. I went all in on the stuff. And within three months, you know, that number had 2X'd. Wow. And what it says to me in hindsight is like, you don't know what you can accomplish until you actually put your energy and focus towards that thing. Um, and when you bet on yourself in that way, you're actually just giving yourself the freedom and the headspace to spend that time 
on that thing and see what happens. Um, how and you, it was really amazing. How do you calibrate that that advice? I think it's pointed advice of basically saying take the leap and bet on yourself. For the audience that may be listening, that let's assume there's some percentage of these people who are in private equity jobs or in corporate jobs, maybe have an audience, maybe don't. But you were making more. It's a non-trivial thing that you were making more in the Twitter world and the audience world than in private equity when you made that leap. How do you calibrate that advice for people who want to make that leap and bet on themselves, but may not have that same pathway to multiple? Yeah, thousands per month in income. I mean, I'm I'm a big believer in de-risking bets. Like, I, I never give the advice to someone to like, you know, you don't have anything set up on the side. Mm. Quit your job and go like try to get something set up on the side. I, I'm a big believer in like the way, the reason my whole thing worked and I had the confidence to do it was because I had these other income streams that were already starting to roll. So I could see, like, I had data points. I had real proof. Right. Like, I, did, I didn't need to convince myself that I could make money on these things because I had evidence that I could make money on these things. Like, I literally had numbers on it in my bank account mm. that proved to me that I knew that there was monetization. I just needed to go say, okay, what could that look like if I if I double down on it and if mm. I spend more time on it. So I, I have generated proof. Like I didn't need to convince anyone to believe me yeah. or I didn't need to convince myself because there was just numbers there. Um, and I think that's important. Like it, it's hard to just convince someone to believe in you. It's much easier if you generate evidence and you say like, I'm just going to go generate evidence in the dark. And then it's, you know, it's, it's not a big leap of faith to say mm. like, okay, now I can, now I can step forward with mm. it. Very good point. Very, very poignant. Talk about, uh, Current Sahil Bloom Enterprises, there is a venture fund. I want to hear how that started because yeah. I think you have some non-trivial LPs. What are all the different business yeah, lines you yeah. have right now? So, look, I um, I did not set out, you know, as I started spending more time on this stuff. It wasn't like my vision was to, like, write Twitter threads, right? Like, that wasn't what I was Thread trying boy. to build. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, I, that, that wasn't what I was doing. I've yeah. always been a big believer in playing long-term games. Yeah. Like, what, are the, what is the thing that you're going to parlay this into? And my whole thing was, like, this is how I vault myself into relevance hmm. and become someone that people are looking to and I can build something on top of um, and reach millions and millions of people, which ultimately is my long-term goal in life. Like, I'm not particularly money-motivated. I have plenty uh, – I have plenty in my life. Like, I don't really feel like I need all that much more in my life, candidly. I'm just not one of the those people that's like, oh, I need this, this, and this. I'm perfectly happy. My life is, is swell. And so for me, I was like, I might be able to reach a billion people. Like, if I can go impact a billion lives over the course of my life, that that is amazing to me and, and totally ludicrous. But say that that's my vision for my life. How can I parlay what I'm doing mm. today into that? And um, what I've now kind of looked at is like, okay, what are the... What are the steps? Like, what am I going to go build around all of this? The fund was the first thing. Um, How'd that happen? You know, I had been investing. Obviously, I was in the private equity world. I had done a bunch of personal investing in early stage companies outside of my day job. Um, originally through Stanford Networks and then Friends of Friends that were starting companies. Just being in the scene. Yeah. yeah, being in the scene. I was in Silicon Valley. And so I had invested a bunch. Like, I had dry powder just from my income that I was earning. Um, and I had invested in probably like 40 companies personally. Mm. A bunch of those had done well. You know, partially because I was seeing good things, partially because the market was yeah. ripping over those years and everything yeah. looked good. Um, but I was able to, you know, in January of 2022, go out and raise a fund. So I raised a $10 million venture fund from, uh, you know, a few big institutions and then really the GPs of some of the most famous venture funds in the world. 
uh, invested. And, you know, it's kind of like a tie-in. We share deal flow and see things and work on stuff together. And really the thesis was that I could leverage this massive platform I had to amplify the stories of these companies that I was investing in. So basically be able to talk about them publicly and get them a whole lot more exposure than a TechCrunch article or a Forbes article yep. can. Um, and that's played out. You know, I've invested in 30 or so companies out of that fund and I've continued to be able to do that. And I have a ton of dry powder going into a amazing bear market where valuations mm. are going to be better. So that that's kind of one. And that's like uh, a big piece. How's the fund doing? Fund's great so far. I mean, it's, it's early, you know, nine months or whatever. Sure. And the average investment's five months old or something like that. Is the ambition to do a fund two and fund three and follow the PE model? Um, I don't have any ambition to grow the size of the funds, which is a hilarious, you know, it, it kind of goes to my point of like not being yeah. money focused. Um, most people, when they raise a $10 million first fund, it's because they want to raise a $50 million yeah. second fund and a $250 yeah. million third fund. Zero desire to do that. And I'm not just saying that from a marketing standpoint. Like I just, if you do that and you got to go hire 10 people and you got to build all this infrastructure and, you know, do LP meetings and roadshows and like, I just don't want to do that. Mm. I, I want to like stay at a $10 million fund, maybe like max 20 million, but basically in the size range where you never as a founder have to hesitate about bringing me onto the cap table mm. because the value I can provide for a hundred K to 250 K check is so clear at a million dollar check. Now it's tougher. It's a tougher trade-off. You're having to choose between me and like founders fund or something at that size check at a seed. And that's a difficult trade-off then. Um, and so my thesis was like staying small is actually an advantage. It's like this Goldilocks zone for mm -hmm. me as a fund. So my desire would be to, you know, on like every two-ish years, raise a small fund that I can use to invest in and spend time with some of the smartest and most ambitious founders in the world. Cool. All right. So fund is one vertical. What fund are the other is one ones? vertical. Um, I sort of think of it as like fund. Uh, agency, which still exists, the thing I mentioned familiar, I have a guy that sort of runs that. Um, and now I'm kind of like seeding a couple of other agencies mm -hmm. that I've um, uh, invested in and built up with a few friends. And then, uh, you know, the third major vertical is all the media stuff, which is newsletter, Twitter, newsletter. There was a podcast I'm no longer doing. Season um, two coming or you're holding for now? I am not involved in the podcast anymore. Okay. Um, and that's because I went to focus on the book. Sure. Okay, cool. Let's talk yeah. about the book. <coughs> Congratulations, first of all. You t I don't know how much of this story you're comfortable sharing, but you told me the story of how the deal came at the 11th hour and you had a goal to get a certain <laughs> deal done and it happened. So as much as you can share about the book, yeah. please tell us. Yeah. So I'd always wanted to write a book. I mean, I go back to this whole concept of impacting a billion lives. It sounds ludicrous even when I say it. Um, I'm going to go do it, though. Um, Hell yeah. And a book has always sat at the center of that for me. When I think about the people that I stand on the shoulders of and really admire, people like Tim Ferriss, people like Brian Holiday, James Clear, a book is a huge part of that ecosystem. Mm. And no matter what we want to say about traditional media and the way things have changed, books are still unbelievable pillars for people to go and reach and to vault yourself. Um, and so I always thought that I would write a book. I didn't yet have an idea of what exactly that was that I was gonna be so excited about and so obsessed with that I wanted to write about it for mm. a year plus. I had that idea this summer um, and I ended up going out to market. I had an agent. Um, you know, you kind of go on a roadshow and like market your book. Sort of like a fund or a startup. Yeah, yeah, you go and market it to a bunch of publishers. They come in and bid on it. Like, you know, they kind of bid to buy the rights to the book. Um, and like you said, I mean, I I had kind of it, it's stupid because it's it's a dangerous game to play when you have uh, 
success tied to something that's out of your control yeah your definition of success is something out of your control that's a dangerous game to play it happens when you're like you know 28 and you decide you want to get forbes 30 under 30 right like it's a common one for young people you're mm-hmm. like you see all your friends having all the success and getting all the uh you know the accolades and you want to get that well you have no control over that i don't know how forbes decides but you have no control totally. over that and so when you don't get it and you feel like oh my god i'm not successful that sucks because really it was just that your definition of success was off there's this amazing story in uh mark manson's book the subtle art of not giving a fuck that he talks about this uh guitarist who gets kicked out of a band and right before they're about to sign their like record label he gets kicked out and he takes this bus all the way back home to la he gets off the bus and he's like i'm gonna start a bigger band than that band i just got kicked out of that's what i'm gonna do that's my life's goal and he starts a band and they grind away and they become this unbelievably successful band, Megadeth, like one of the most mm. successful metal bands of all time. But this guy was never happy his entire life. And the reason is because the band he got kicked out of was Metallica. And so no matter what he did in his whole life with his band, it didn't matter because the band mm. he got kicked out of was arguably the most successful band of all time. And that is a very dangerous game to play is the broader point when you define success by something out of your control and so for me like back to the book point i had this number in mind that for whatever reason i had decided was the number that i wanted to get for the book advance and during the auction process on the day that auction i was texting you it didn't seem like i was going to hit it and i was really fighting i was on a walk with my wife and i was fighting the urge of like i'm going to be disappointed Mm. with how this works out and I was trying to rationalize it. I was like, hey, uh, like I should feel really happy, right? And she was like, yes, of course, this is amazing. You know, she's telling me that. Right as I was like trying to rationalize, mm. feeling disappointed, I got a call from my agent that one of the bidders had like blown through the number wow. that I wanted. And I went nuts. I mean, like it was just this <laughs> massive, massive um, happy moment in my life. And it's great when those kind of things happen. Yeah. Um, but I really, I mean, I got lucky. Like well, it was, it, it was also right at the moment when you were going to force yourself to come to terms know. with it, right? Oh, you just man. gave a, you just gave yeah. us a mental model about being okay with that yeah. and how dangerous it is. And luckily this one worked out in your favor. I know, but, but it was a good reminder to me because yeah. now I'm doing it with the future success of the book, right? I'm like I'm writing the book mm. and in my mind, I'm like, okay, what's going to make this book successful? Like, well, it's got to be a New York times bestseller, zero control over that. I yeah. have no way of knowing how they decide it. And from what I've heard, it's really fickle. Like it's yeah. not actually based on the number of book sales. And so that is now scaring me where I'm like, okay, I got to chip away at that pattern of thinking around this because otherwise I'm setting myself up for disappointment. Mm. I might sell 50,000 books the first week. And if they just decide it's not one they want to put on their list, it's not on their list. And now I'm going to say it's a failure. Like that's Mm. a scary, scary game to play for something I'm going to spend two years of my life on. Um, Especially if the book is giving people real value. Especially if the book is giving people real value. And especially if it's something lasting, which I believe it's going to be because I'm not going to release it until it is. Yeah. What's the book about? The book is about wealth, uh, broadly defined. So, the basic principle that I'm going to be talking about is this idea that wealth goes far beyond money and creating a modern guide to building a comprehensive and fulfilling life across all of the different types of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, super excited about it. I mean, it's it's an ambitious project that's going to pull together a wide range of disciplines and experts and perspectives. Um, but I think if it if it hits, it's going to be truly, truly unique in the market, mm-hmm. not like anything else that's been put out. How are you thinking about it right now? Well, in your world, you have a new kid, you have a wife, you're blowing up on Twitter, you're writing a book. <laughs> um, I feel for the first time in my life as though I have enough. Hmm. Uh, there's this speech, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, the author and 
think it was 1998, he gave a commencement speech at Rice University. And in it, he talks about this interaction he had um, with a friend. And basically, the premise of it was, um, you know, I have more than this billionaire. And the person says, what? No, like, you don't have more than them. And he says, I do, because I have the knowledge that I have enough. Mm. And that's always really resonated with me. This whole idea of having enough um, is a really, really powerful concept. Because once you feel that, you are the wealthiest person in the world. Mm. I don't need more. And when my son was born this summer, I really, for the first time in my life, had that feeling where I no longer felt like, you know, the, the Greek mythology, um, mm. of Sisyphus, you know, like pushing the boulder up the hill. And as right. soon as you get to the top of the hill, it rolls back down to the bottom and you have to just keep pushing it mm. in perpetuity. I no longer felt that way. I no longer felt like I was just going for the next more. Like, you know, most people get on this treadmill, you go, you buy a car and then the next day you see someone with a nicer car and you're like, ah, I really want that. You know, mm. I got the, I got a Porsche, but that guy has a Ferrari. Like I'm going to, I need to go get that. Or you get a boat and someone has a bigger boat next to you. That's just the way most people live their lives. And it's a very unfulfilling mm. way to live. Um, so for me, I mean, I am for the first time in my life in this state of, I just feel like I have enough. Like I, I don't, mm. if nothing else comes to me in my life and this is the life that I have and what I can do, I feel enormously, enormously lucky. I'm going to uh, challenge and flip that back on you with with the book coming. With I think there's a, a theme in a lot of what you write about, which is about making things simpler and uh, making real education more ubiquitous and available to people, making wealth more available to people. The ideas of wealth. Where does the vision take you in a five year window, a ten year window? Right. I know you're. I know you say you have enough, but you're working your ass off, you're hustling, it's growing, things are great, more people are knowing about you every mm-hmm. single day. What is what is the real vision here? The vision is to impact a billion people. Um, I Like I said, and like I said earlier, and like I'll say again, I'm not particularly money motivated. I am a believer that separating money from the things you do ends up actually, ironically, bringing more money into your life. Ever since I've spent less time, you know, I was in finance, I spent all my time thinking about what my bonus was gonna be or what I was gonna make make a whole lot more money now that I stopped thinking about money. And I started thinking about value. What value was I bringing into people's lives? When you Mm. make that flip, when you start thinking about what value can I create for people, you end up actually having more value come back to you. Create value, receive value. It's the golden rule. Um, I think that across everything I'm doing, I could impact a billion lives. Um, And again, every time I say it, it sounds ludicrous, even to me. but part of life, if you're going to go after these amazing things, is being a little bit insane and having a little bit of a crazy vision because you have to see something in yourself that no one else sees or believes at that moment in time. And eventually, everyone might agree with you and say, like, yeah, of course. You know, Elon Musk is a great example of this. People hate on him, right? But at one point, he had the idea of building a space rocket company. When NASA, you know, governments were the only thing that could go to space. It was completely ludicrous. Crazy. Yeah, the audacity to have that idea. And now it seems obvious and everyone agrees. It's like, oh, SpaceX has completely changed and unlocked the entire space economy. Um, So the whole goal is for people to think you're crazy, but then later agree with you and think it's obvious Mm. and it's consensus. And you have to have that belief at the point when everyone thinks you're crazy. You have to be crazy enough to believe in yourself and to see that in yourself And so that's how I think about it. You know, as I think about my own vision, I'm like, the book is a great next step in all of this. Um, 
I'm building all of my platforms around this. You know, Instagram is growing a lot. LinkedIn, I'm really focused on the newsletter. Um, YouTube will be expanding soon. Mm. Um, all of it, you know, starting to spend more time talking to people, spending more time around broader groups of people across different countries, building an international audience, etc. Mm. Um, I think there's really something there. And I think if I'm going to do this, it's going to be through spoken word and through written word. Mm. I want to make some... Uh... I want to try to give some actionable things to the audience here. So the Uncharted audience, the Advertising Week audience, I'm going to venture to guess that there's a preponderance of people who would want to ask you about how should they be thinking about building their audience in the context of their world. So there's probably some executives from big companies listening who are thinking about either how do I build the profile of my business or myself and or rising entrepreneurs who are saying, I mean, they're hearing you and all the things you've been able to monetize, all the revenue streams, it's diversified, it's, you're going to impact a billion people, you have a book. How should those various people be thinking through, myself as well, right, the on-ramp to starting to build a personal brand authentically? What value do you have to bring to people? I think that has to be the guiding question. Like, what can you offer to people that is new or unique, that is different, that is a different perspective? that you can share in a slightly different way or in language that makes more sense, that's more digestible, that has to be the guiding light. If you drive it in the other direction of like, I want to build an audience and don't focus on the value, you're not going to build the audience you want. Mm. You're not playing the game that you want to be playing. You're going to end up with an audience that's not the audience that you were trying to build if you do it in the inverse direction. So it has to be driven by what value can I provide? What value can I put out into the world? And you'll receive the value in turn from the attention that people will gift you. Hmm. And so that like that always has to be in front and center of your mind if you're going to go try to build something um, from a platform standpoint. And I think, look, I, I think there is a massive opportunity for any business owner, um, you know, operators out there that have a lot of experience to share more of it. And I think it's an amazing thing when people are sharing because there's someone out there, something that's obvious to you, Noah, sitting here, to someone out there, it is not obvious. Mm. And they will learn a lot from it, but you're not sharing it because you think it's obvious. Mm. And that's a terrible thing. That's just an inefficiency in the market. Mm. That you have some knowledge in your brain that you think is obvious, so you're not going to share it. Because, like, oh, everyone knows that thing, right? Or they're afraid of being cringy. Yeah. Well, because you think it's obvious. It's like, I mean, it'll be, when, you, when you're afraid of being cringy, it's because you're like, well, you know, this is cringy because it's obvious. Mm. Like, oh, I'm not going to share this, you know, random insight I have because, like, yeah, everyone knows that. It's stupid. I'm a 25-year-old. Like, why would... But to some 18-year-old kid, you might speak to them in the exact way that they needed to hear on that given day. Mm. And the fact that you just didn't share it is actually a little selfish, if you could have. And so I, I'm a big believer in that. Like, I think people should share. And if you have something to say, and if you have a story that you want to tell, tell your story. Hmm. And the worst that happens is that no one sees it. Powerful. That's not so bad. Powerful. It's a good plea to the audience. I want to be conscious of your time. Uh, we've been going for a while here. Anything you want to talk to the audience about? Anything you want to riff on? How can the audience be supportive of your A Million and One Ventures and book? <laughs> uh, well, buy my book when it comes out. Everyone sure. buys Sahil's <laughs> book. It's an order. Yeah. If you're listening, you have to buy it. We're coming after you. Yeah, because now I need to get now New York Times bestseller. Yeah. He's going to be super disappointed <laughs> if he doesn't have it. Uh, no, man. I mean, I, um, I think that's a great last point is like, you know, if you have a story to tell, tell it. 
and if I can be helpful on people's journeys, like I'm always looking to support other people on these journeys. I'm hoping to support you as you continue to tell your story mm. um, and share your insights. But if I can be helpful, like people know where to find me. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not hiding. All my DMs are open on all these platforms. Um, my newsletter, you can email me back. I see all the emails. I respond to all of them. Um, I take a lot of my time to interact with actual people in the audience. This isn't like some you know city on a hill where I like toss down insights and then just go and like hide behind my castle walls. Mm. That's not how I live my life i want to interact with people and so i would encourage people to just you know if you have questions reach out right like we all stand on the shoulders of someone else and i'm happy to be those shoulders for someone who's trying to come up Mm. well i'm super grateful that we've gotten to know each other become friends you're amazing you're uh you're a super down-to-earth guy super talented i appreciate you doing this and the help you've offered me and so it's uh it's an honor to know you thanks for doing this brother and uh, i think we'll end on that Mm -hmm.